Well, this is just a little slide that uh, we've put up for a couple of weeks that um, we're using to help us remember some core things about who we are and who we want to be. Um, this week, we celebrated, or, I mean, we didn't really celebrate, but we, it happened. Um, 19 years ago, uh, the first group of people gathered uh, uh, on the, the 20th of September as the beginning of our church. And um, it's always a, a special day for me. And I told my comm group as we were meeting this week and talking about community, just how you know, just sentimental it is to, to, uh, to be able to sit here and do that thinking about the fact that we were doing that very same thing 19 years earlier in hopes that we would be able to be living it out uh, on this day. Uh, in fact, uh, one of our very first members is here, one of my favorite people in the world, Jessica Whitty, is with us, and her husband Brian, who we like also, but uh, they're, coming, they're down from uh, the Dallas area, joining us for worship today, and glad to have them with us. Um, but we're, our focus as a church, then, maybe didn't spell it out exactly this way, but, uh, but that's kind of how we've tried to, to live, is that our attentions and efforts would be on, focus, uh, on following Jesus with everything that we are, and to do that in, in true biblical community, to do it together in the right way, the way the Bible says, the way we read about in Acts that, that seems so... Uh, awesome, but we don't always get to experience and wonder why. So let's let's try for this. Why not? Uh, and to join God, knowing that He's at work in the world, in creation, uh, to redeem uh, all of mankind, all of creation, to to join Him in that effort. And so that's what we want to be about. And what we've been talking about the last few weeks is specifically this idea of following Jesus, uh, that part of things. And then more specifically, we've talked about worship and what that looks like. So last week, I basically blasted everybody for not singing loud enough, right? That's how it went. Um, uh, Becca, like that mean old man up there, mommy, uh, told us we were all going to hell unless we raised our hands more. Um, <laughs> okay, don't worry. Thad's going to be back. Uh, he's just away at a conference. Um, so things will go back to normal. But real quick, just so I know, just to kind of help me a little bit. Who in here just does not absolutely hates raising their hands in church? Let me see. Uh, <laughs> you invite catch that. <laughs> I stole that one. That's a bad joke. Think about it. Okay. Seriously, uh, the main point of last week was, uh, as we looked at Psalm 96... Um, was that our worship of God is meant to involve our emotions. Our hearts have to be engaged. Our hearts must be stirred in some way. Uh, and that's what we read through in this psalm. That uh, whether it's a feeling of brokenness, and these are all emotions that the psalms lay out uh, in different aspects, in, di in different parts of the psalms. Uh, whether it's, it's, it's a, a brokenness over our sin, a feeling of of just like, how can, I, how can I stand before you, holy God, uh, knowing what I've done, knowing uh, what, uh, who I am in, in my sin? Um, that, that brokenness, that contrition um, can, can be there in worship. Or it maybe is a deep longing in us uh, to just have more of him. I, just, I, I know that there's more of you, God. I want more of you. 
Uh, maybe it's a profound sense of awe to, to really understand his holiness and, and even fear him uh, as you stand before a holy God. Maybe it's just a deep satisfaction that you feel in your soul because you know you're unconditionally loved by him. And you're able to worship him out of that. Or you're thankful for something he's done for you. Specifically this week, maybe, as you sang, you're, just, you're grateful, you're, you're uh, encouraged by him in that way. Or maybe it's a hope, uh, not in what you are currently experiencing, but what you believe that you will experience, what he has for you, and you're hoping for that. Uh, or maybe it's just an unbridled joy in, in knowing your Savior. Uh, all those are emotions that we are told to express as we worship the Lord. And we said that we didn't want to be like the, these people that, that Jesus talked about, hypocrites, that honor uh, him with their lips, but their hearts are removed from what's really going on. And their worship is actually in vain because of it. And since we know that worship is more than just singing, uh, and I'm sure that many of you, even last week as we talked, thought about this and, and, and uh, hopefully even experienced some of this this week, uh, that you worship God in different ways. It's not always about singing. It's not always uh, this time or even you know, the things that we do, whether it's singing or communion, uh, prayer, uh, corporately. That there are other ways that you commune with God uh, when we're not meeting together. What I'm uh, not talking about, though, is, is that, that you're just like thinking of your place of peace or your happy place, okay? That's not necessarily worship. But when you really know that your heart and your mind are tuned into God in such a way that you're reflecting back uh, glory to him, that you're worshiping him in something you're doing, what if we could live like that? Have that daily awareness of his presence and a daily awareness that we are engaged in worship. Romans 1 gives us a bigger picture, a bigger understanding, a broader understanding of what it means to truly worship God. And this is where the Apostle Paul is, is really saying some important spirit-directed, doctrinal, deep theological things for the, for the early church and these Roman Christians. And of course, for us now today. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick up, um, he, he starts off, uh, you know, saying who he is and what authority he has, and then he goes through basically 11 chapters uh, of writing about the mercies of God uh, and, and, and why basically the song that we sang earlier right after communion uh, that Ross wrote uh, called Written, that, that that those mercies are written, that his forgiveness is the word that's written over our heart. Uh, that truth is, it comes right out of uh, the first 11 chapters of Romans. God's mercy is so great that it overcomes all of our sin, all the, the effects of our sin that, that lead to death, and it breathes spirit life into us, into our hearts, and sets us on an eternal course of righteousness. And so let's read uh, in, in chapter 12, and, and where we are is a turning point uh, when we come to chapter 12 in uh, all this theological doctrinal discourse, and, and now Paul kind of turns it toward, okay, so that's what this means. This is what you do with this stuff. So in Romans 12, 
1 and 2, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And I don't memorize scripture. I got a thing back here, so if you're wondering, how's, he's not looking at notes. He's not, I like it because I can actually see it. It's big enough, even with my, my eye problems, to, to be able to read it. So uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul is using language. And let's go back to the first verse. That is symbolic of the priestly work in the temple. So uh, this, this, these two verses are kind of the first part is uh, more symbolism, and then verse 2 is going to turn toward more explanation of what that symbolism is. And so as he uh, gives us his symbolism, uh, he's basically saying this is you know, like what the priests used to do in the temple to worship God. And then in verse 2, he gives us the, the, the explanation of how our lives are to be lived in an overall act of worship. So as verse 1 says, present our body as a living sacrifice. And when we do, it says, that's going to be worship. So remember we said last week that worship is basically reflecting God's glory back to him. So when we sing, it's easy to understand uh, that that's what we're doing, right? Uh, uh, We're obviously proclaiming truth in that moment as we sing things about him, praising him for those things. It's a very concrete kind of exercise that we're engaged in when we're worshiping in that way. But how do our bodies worship him? Well, we can understand that that this verse is reminding us that our bodies are to be involved in worship. And so we talked a lot about that last week, but it, it just makes sense that when we sing, our bodies take various postures that are appropriate for what's going on in our heart. So whether it's sitting or standing uh, or clapping your hands, which we actually did today, awesome, uh, or raising our hands or kneeling or dancing, our bodies have to be engaged as we participate in worship. We're not just meant to think about it or just move our lips. Our, Our whole body should be engaged in the worship of God. But Paul here has a much bigger view in mind, and he wants us to understand how all of our actions in life um, can and should be seen as worship. That's what he means when he says bodies, everything about us. In other words, not just a specific thing that we do at a specific time, but you, me, all of the time, our whole being, our bodies. So he continues this symbolism uh, with the priestly act of laying a living, unblemished animal sacrifice on the temple altar. That's why this verse is better understood to say living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. So that's not exactly how the NIV has it. And uh, we tend to hear, or or the ESV in in this case, when when we read it like this, uh, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, we tend to hear uh, this idea that um, the... uh, the difference as opposed to a dead animal sacrifice. But we forget that the animals were still alive when they were brought to the altar. They were living. And so it's better to understand this verse in the context of 
uh, a living, holy, and uh, acceptable sacrifice, just like that unblemished lamb. So um, Paul calls us, calls this uh, our, our true and proper worship. And in your version, it might say spiritual act of worship. Uh, there's different ways to interpret, interpret this because the Greek word is really hard to interpret into our language. And so it really takes more than one word to do it. Um, so as he says, uh, this is your true and proper worship, uh, what basically it means is that this is either your rational worship or your reasonable worship of God. Either way, what he's talking about is, is that it's an intelligent worship. Our mind is engaged. Our emotions, our emotions are to be engaged. But remember we said we, we uh, real worship, you know, we've got to have uh, a theological side to it. It has to be driven by something. So our mind has to be engaged. It's an intelligent worship. There was a... a as Paul was writing this kind of stuff and thinking he may have had this guy in mind, but there was a, a, a Stoic philosopher in his day that, that actually said you know, something very similar. He said, if I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. And if I were a swan, what is proper for a swan? In fact, I'm a rational being, so I must praise God. This is our rational worship. It just makes sense. That's what we do. That's who we are. That's what we were created to be and to do. And so uh, if it, you know, looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, you know, it's a duck, okay? I mean, that's what we are. We are made to be worshipers of God. We must praise him. And then it seems like Paul is maybe trying to get the attention of his Greek hearers. You remember uh, the, the Greek culture is, is really immersed in the teachings of Plato. And in those teachings, they thought of the body as kind of a problem. I mean, we kind of think of our bodies as problems sometimes too, so maybe we haven't changed all that much. But uh, they had an understanding that kind of the body was a tomb, that our, that our spirit was uh, encapsulated in this tomb. And they just couldn't wait you know, for, for that spirit to be set free. So he's, as he says this, uh, it's really running counter to things that they understand about the body. When he says that we're to offer our bodies, our, that our bodies are something that God wants. Um, and, uh, you know, even if you, if you go to church today, uh, a, a lot of places will issue kind of an invitation to give your heart to Jesus. I mean, nobody really issues an invitation to give your body to Jesus, but that's really what we should be doing, according to, to Paul here. We have to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Um, so Paul's already been pretty clear, though, uh, and that, um, and you can read this, I'm not going to read it, but our bodies are what reveals our depravity, basically. And uh, we have tongues that deceive we have lips that spread poison. We have mouths that curse and are bitter. We have eyes that look away from God. And we have feet that rush into evil. But he also teaches that the members of our body should be instruments of righteousness. That God created our bodies to glorify him. That our feet 
would follow after him, that our lips would speak truth and proclaim the gospel. He, he says that our tongues will bring healing, that our hands will minister to those in need, that our arms will embrace the lonely, that our ears will hear the cries of the oppressed, and that our eyes will humbly turn to look upon the beauty of our God. The members of our body, all of them, are to be presented to God, to be used by God, to be glorifying to God, to be instruments of righteousness. So how do we do that? Verse 2 kind of explains more, more of uh, the symbolism. And he says uh, that if our entire self is going to be engaged in worship, then our minds must be careful to not conform, not to conform to the way that this world operates, but instead to be completely devoted to being changed, to being transformed. So he writes, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his, his good, pleasing and perfect will. We don't get to put our life on autopilot just because we get saved, right? We can't just sit around and think that God's gonna do uh, all this amazing stuff in us uh, after we get saved, if we don't participate in, in what he wants to do. Uh, the, the tense of the verb here is present tense. So that means in order for us to be true followers of Jesus, we must be committed to having an ongoing, continual, uh, never-ceasing, cognizant effort at transforming our minds to think like him in our world. We have to be diligent about this. We have to be uh, truly engaged in, in our minds being something that are, 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 are transforming how we live. Uh, that we're thinking more and more like him every day. Paul didn't specifically tell us how to do that here. I, I wish he would have, but, but he does tell us in a lot of other places and uh, in, in other New Testament writers tell us as well um, that we are transformed both by the work of the Holy Spirit. So it isn't something that uh, we are necessarily having to, to do all by ourselves, right? Jesus said, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send you one who's going to guide you into all truth and righteousness. And so the Holy Spirit is with us to do that. We can hear his voice. We can, we can listen to him. We can follow him. And so that's part of it. The, the other part is that he's given us uh, his revealed word in Scripture for us to read, for us to study, for us to know, to understand his truth, and to be activated by the Holy Spirit uh, to help with that guiding. So when we pray and when we spend intentional time with him, he changes us. That, that's what's happening. There's, there's a transformation going on. When we read, when we study, when we understand more biblical truth, we begin to be transformed into somebody new and different and whole in the way that we were created to be. And so that transformation, really by its very nature, tends to make us completely different than the status quo of the world around us. And we find ourselves proactively being salt and light in the world. Instead of always just reacting and scrambling to try to make sense of the politics of our day or the lifestyles or the media or the violence or whatever the world's throwing at us, 
we're, we're able to be proactive instead because we've been transformed and not reactive to the world's ways, not conformed. Yes, we're going to still need to make sense of a lot of that stuff, right? Um, but we are not going to be so easily swept up in it, not swept up in the prevailing thoughts of our culture. And that's what Paul wants for us. Instead, he tells us uh, we will be able to confidently test and approve the way of Jesus in the midst of it all. In other words, a transformed mind should be able to recognize what is good. If you have been transformed, if you have become more like Jesus in your thoughts, you should be able to recognize uh, the, the difference between good and evil, the, the, the things that, that uh, the, the way that Jesus sees the world. Not be swept up with the cultural thought, the cultural action, that could be uh, something completely different from what God intends. That's the testing part. We can recognize that. We can see it. We can call it what it is. But really, it's more than that, and that's, this is the approved part, because we actually have the capacity to sift through it all and determine the true value in things with a spiritual mind uh, as we look around us, as we engage with culture. We can mine out the, the truths of God. We can, we can be able to approve, to, to search out the heart of God in what he's doing, in something that, that might readily not be uh, so obvious, uh, we're, we're a, whether it's good or bad, we're able to sense that. It's almost like we've got some special superhero, you know, spidey sense or something that we just kind of have this sixth sense about us as we're transformed. We can recognize that stuff. We can uh, sense the Lord's work in it, uh, and that's the Holy Spirit working in us. When we do that, we're able to determine that much of what we previously thought was so important might actually not be so important, too. And conversely, we learn to treasure things that only a deeply transformed mind is able to see the full value in. In other words, as you grow in Jesus, the things that you once thought were so important in life are probably going to change you're probably going to have a different outlook on life. And this isn't just about getting older. Uh, this is about getting more mature in Jesus because your mind is being transformed. You're seeing things through a different lens, through a different filter, and you desire different things as a result of it. So now you treasure things that you didn't think were all that important before. And you, you want those things and you long for those things. So an example of this. Uh, I love basketball, okay? I love playing it when I was younger, uh, not so much now, but I love watching it, I love coaching it, and so when Ashley and I first got married, she knew all this about me, um, and she attempted to share in that love of basketball with me, which is a good thing, right? I mean, it's husbands and wives should, should try to appreciate what you know, the other appreciates. So first year of our marriage, uh, I'd, I'd been going for several years to the, the uh, March Madness stuff and the Final Four, um, and so I got tickets uh, uh, in, in 93, uh, we, we were married uh, in 92, so it's the first tournament, 
So we're going, right? I mean, this is what we're going to do. You're my buddy now. We're, we're going to go hang out uh, at the Final Four. And uh, Ashley understood the game of basketball enough. Uh, she, she'd kind of known about, you know, how things work. She actually dated a guy before me that liked basketball too. So she had picked up on some of that. Uh, it wasn't something that she was passionate about. It wasn't something that she had played. Uh, but she was able to get it, and I could explain some things even a little bit further and, and help her to appreciate it even more. In fact, I think I made you kind of take a test before we went to see if you knew all the players or the important ones so that we'd be able to talk about And you wouldn't say, who? What are you talking about? Um, so, so, yeah. Um, so we go to the final four, and, uh, and I'm having a great time with Ashley and, uh, you know, enjoying the game and all that. But something was kind of missing there. And I think what it was is that Ashley was able to test the game, but she wasn't really able to approve the game. She just didn't like it like I did. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. She hadn't played. She hadn't watched a bunch of games all season. She didn't know all the details about the teams. Um, she didn't know about the storied history of North Carolina's championship traditions or the rise of the Michigan Wolverines and the Fab Five that year. So at the exciting conclusion to the national championship game at the PAC Superdome in New Orleans in 1993 with North Carolina leading 73-71 to 71 with only 19 seconds left to play, the star player from Michigan, Chris Weber, pulls down a rebound off of a missed free throw and amazingly gets away with an overt travel and then starts to dribble towards his bench. And then this is the picture of him turning to the referee to call a timeout, which they didn't have. And so in basketball, you get a technical foul for calling a timeout that you don't own anymore because you've used all of yours up. And so this action basically sealed the game for North Carolina, and they went on to win the national championship. It was exciting. Ashley did not freak out nearly as much as I did in that moment. She didn't fully comprehend how big of a moment that was, and to this day, she doesn't appreciate the memory of it like I do. That doesn't make her a bad person. Probably more normal, right? But as far as basketball goes, she has clearly not been transformed from a casual observer to a passionate fan. God wants people who are fanatics for him and for his ways. He doesn't want us to just know some things about him, right? He wants us to taste and see, the psalmist says, that he is good, to consume him. It's almost like we just can taste how good the Lord is when our minds have been transformed in that way. And the good news about this is that this is available to all of us. We don't have to have some special place with God, some special degrees from seminary or anything else. This is freely available through the power of the Holy Spirit for each one of us to know 
him in this way. But in order to get there, we've got to be honest that much of our life has probably already been conformed to the way of this world. And you just really need to think about like how much you do and think is influenced and, and has been conformed to the way of this world. We also might need to confess that we have actually hardened our hearts toward God. Uh, Ephesians 4.18 says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. He warns us. Because our minds haven't been engaged or because our hearts have been hardened, our minds can't be engaged. Uh, we, we've got to be honest and, and real before the Lord about our status with him, uh, our relationship with him. And maybe that's why we can't worship when we come together. We don't have any desire to do it. Maybe that's why we can't understand uh, why we don't want to follow after Jesus in the whole of our life, with our whole bodies, with our whole being, uh, in what we do when we leave here. And we must be diligent in our practice of listening to the Spirit's voice. We've got to take time to listen. You can't just fill up. I mean, you, you can't just always be listening to podcasts of, of sermons and think that you're going to get more. You've you got to be still before the Lord sometimes and just let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Um, but you've also got to know the truth of Scripture. You've got to study. You've got to be transformed in that way. So being transformed means that we're more confidently able to discern what is good, what is pleasing, and what is perfect. And not being transformed, at best, is going to call into question our ability to tell the difference between what our culture calls good and what truly is. At worst we may end up thinking and doing the exact opposite of what uh, pleases the Lord. So we, there's a lot at stake here. Uh, God's glory is at stake. Our right living is at stake. Our right reflection of who he is. And, and if we are not continually, uh, in the present tense, being transformed, then we're potentially missing out on his voice and, and participating in uh, the things that he's doing. And then also I want to add that being around others, doing church, doing uh, community life together, um, it, it is right and good because when we're around others that are being transformed in the body of Christ, this is going to further ensure our ability to see and do things the way God desires. If we remove ourselves from that kind of environment, then it's going to at least increase our chances of missing him. And certainly we're not going to have anybody around us to call us out, to hold us accountable, or to spur us on in the right direction, right? So vital that we do this in community. So kind of to wrap up what we've been saying here, uh, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, then we must understand his mercy. His mercy that's been shown to us, and to be truly concerned about his will in our life. And that mercy must then inspire us uh, in, in, the f in the face of an influential culture, right? I mean, we, there's so much thrown at us, so much that it has the potential to influence our behavior, our actions, our thoughts. 
But God's mercy is stronger than that stuff, and it needs to inspire us to rise above it, to present all of our body, all of our life to him, with the goal being that we will be transformed for his glory. That's what it's meant to live a life of worship to him. And we're going to come closer and closer to being obedient to Jesus' great command in Mark 12, where he tells us to love him with all of our being, our bodies, ourselves, all of our being, to love him, and to love our neighbor in the same way. In 1563, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism was written. It was written uh, in what is now present-day Germany, but in, in an effort uh, to kind of bring Christians together uh, to unify uh, the, the Christians in that area. It became a guide for the churches there and still to this day is used. Uh, it, it, what it did was basically lay out what they were going to teach every Sunday. And so each Sunday had its own uh, teaching, and, and uh, the, the people would learn these, these things in the catechism. Uh, and catechism is basically written in a way that uh, there's a question and then an answer to that question. Uh, and so uh, as we close today, I think that this catechism, uh, the third section of it, which is titled Gratitude, uh, sums up really well what we've been talking about. And what we're supposed to be about as we go about our week this week, as we go about the rest of our year, as we go about the rest of our life, trying and striving for the kind of life that is holy and pleasing to God, that is truly worship to him. It's not just about what we get. This is the specific expression of that in a very tangible way. But there is such an overarching mindset that we are to have toward worship in all of our lives. So I'd like us to close today uh, by standing and reading from the beginning of this section, uh, this, this catechism. I'll read the question, and we uh, all in unison will read the answer as our closing prayer. So the question is, since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also restoring us by his spirit into his image, so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits, so that we may be praised through us, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Amen.